0: So great this morning. I think we're just going to have a psalm sing just for the rest of the time. Let's just have a singing convention. But let's hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 23. They told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And Yahweh said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, We're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of Yahweh once again. And Yahweh answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought when the Philistines struck them with a mighty blow and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we do praise you and give you thanks for your word, and we come to it now as humble students. We ask you to fill us with your spirit that we might receive the message of of your word. And Father, guide me as I I walk us through this this text. Uh, Help me to forget everything that's not helpful or not true, uh, deliver us all from error, deliver us all from distraction, and Father, grant that we might know you through your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, if we were to work together to list all of the ailments and pathologies and deformed values of our society, if we were able to just call them out and write them all down, not only would it take a very long time, we could produce a fairly lengthy catalog of woes, just things that are wrong with our generation. But I would wager that if you started to do the work to group them together under various headings, under their causes, or under the root problems lying behind these various issues, and if we work to find commonalities among them, I believe that the biggest collection would be under the heading of symptoms of isolation. These are the things that happen when you're a law to yourself, when you listen to nobody but you, when you uh, only um, decide what you're gonna do for yourself apart from community. Isolation is a thread that weaves its way just about through all of the problems of, of the modern world. You can just you can just think what are, what are the things that destroy us? What are the things that affect us? People pursue fake, profane, one-way relationships with images on a computer screen rather than doing the hard work of connecting with real people. In isolation, what is perverted becomes normal. In isolation, you develop habits and addictions that never get checked. No one is there to say. Stop doing that. You're killing yourself. Knock it off. Isolation also breeds racism and classism and contempt for anyone who's not like you. Anyone who's not in your minuscule circle of experience is hated or suspect. Isolation gives birth to any number of heresies and vain philosophies. If you're a philosophy class of one, if you're the instructor and the student, or you're a theology class of one, you're the instructor and you're the student. Uh, well, you're the smartest kid in the room, but you're also the worst student in the room, and you're also the worst teacher in the room. And yet, people withdraw to themselves to create insane belief systems in a vacuum. I meant to write this guy's name down. Who is the guy who uh, predicted that the world was gonna end yesterday? I looked him up and I wanted to know Who's, who's your pastor? Who are your elders? What church are you a part of? And as you can imagine, I found nothing. I found no connection. See, in isolation, you, you come up with, with oddball, crazy, nutty, insane things all by yourself. I've quoted from this book before, but um, Robert Putnam in that book, Bowling Alone, which is, which is great. Bowling Alone, the subtitle is The Collapse and Revival of American Community. He writes, people divorced from community, occupation, and association are first and foremost among the supporters of extremism. Why is there seemingly such a wave of extremism taking hold of our country from every spe- uh, sec- uh, sector on the spectrum? Why? It's, it's, we have people divorced from community, self-appointed experts who come to their conclusions in isolation and these social cripples and degenerates who find each other, find only one thing in common, terrible ideas. And with these terrible ideas, they create mayhem. Our, our isolation and our fragmentation is, is only fed by our increased reliance on electronic networks of friends. Now, there's no end to the number of criticisms and, and, and things we could levy against social media and social networks of things. While they are and have been great tools and can be used in wonderful ways, we always tend to adopt things and start using them before we start asking, what is this doing to me? What, what, how am I being changed by this? So we just, we just start using it, and then a generation later we find out, oh, wow, well, Smoking kills us. Maybe we should knock that off. We start doing things before we understand the results. So so this isolation and fragmentation is fed by an increased reliance on these electronic networks of friends who only see the carefully choreographed vision of our lives that we want to show them. These artistically framed pictures of our kids and our vacations. Everybody's vacations are so artistic and so well-lit. It's so it's so wonderful. People who we only communicate with through messages that we fine-tune and craft. How long have you taken a half an hour to write a three-sentence Facebook comment? How long have you have you taken half an hour to compose one status update? You see, We we get to project an image that we control using words that we carefully edit. When you communicate with people in real time, face-to-face, you say what's on your mind and you listen charitably, but you don't get to edit. We don't don't get to edit ourselves on the fly. You you have to learn how to communicate and live in the moment. And the more time you spend with people face-to-face, the more you bump into each other, the more you knock each other around, uh, the more you offend, the more opportunities you have Have to forgive, and the more opportunities you have to practice the art of getting over it. It's the fine ancient ancient art of getting over it uh, that that we lose. But you grow and your life is shaped. You see, we don't get that through our our synthetic um, electronic relationships alone. Now, now isolation and the loneliness that comes from isolation can be a choice. It can be a series of choices. We can purposely choose to cut ourselves off, to drive ourselves down into the deep despair of seclusion, or we can be driven to isolation by the sins of others. We can be excluded or abused or pushed by tragedy or deprivation or sorrow or loss, be pushed into loneliness. But whether isolation is your choice, or whether it's been thrust upon you, you must not remain there. You can take a break, you can take a breath, you can get your head screwed on straight, but you have to go, leave the cave of loneliness and despair and go find your people. Now, God allowed Elijah, you remember Elijah's story, uh, God allowed Elijah time to cool off. After Elijah confronted King Ahab and he ran for his life, God, let him camp out by a creek for a while, by a brook. And God fed him in the morning and the evening. But after a while, that brook dried up and God uh, uh, commanded him to go. He said, I need you to go serve somebody. I need you to go serve the widow at Zarephath. That, That brook experience was not to be the new norm for Elijah. It was just a break. It was just some time off, but get back out. The Lord Jesus himself experienced loneliness, not because he liked being all by himself, but because he was despised, he was rejected, he was thrust into loneliness. His own family thought he was mad. He was estranged from his hometown. At different points, then we find Jesus getting away, catching his breath, talking to his father. Ultimately, he's rejected by all of Israel, and even his closest friends abandon him, but he always goes right back to work, pursuing the people who rejected him. In David's story, we're now at the point where he feels pretty friendless, pretty isolated, He's rejected, he's despised, his life is threatened and for no good reason. He's done nothing to deserve the treatment he's gotten from Saul to this point. But when you're in the kind of situation that David's in now, it's extremely difficult to keep your wits about you The the impulse is to run and hide and get away from the fighting and get away from the attacks and and just just go crawl into a cave and, and get away. Well, David literally goes into a cave and there he writes some Psalms, like Psalm 142 is one that he wrote in the cave of Adullam. And here's just a little piece of that Psalm. David writes, look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge. Has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. For David, the isolation and the loneliness and the rejection, he calls it prison. It's worse than a cave. You can leave a cave when you're ready. But David says, No, I am imprisoned by this situation that I'm in. This is a dark time for David. He's not wallowing in self pity. But the reality is he's on his own until people start showing up at the cave. He tries to get away, but the Lord sends a mixed multitude of other people who are on the outs with Saul. And then his family shows up. And then the prophet Gad comes, the prophet who's taking up the mantle from Samuel. Now that Samuel's getting on an age, Gad is the new prophet in Israel. The time for grieving and loneliness and isolation is over. David now has work to do. He gets a break. He gets some time off but he goes right back to work. Gad says, you have to get up David and go down to Judah. David was delivered from Saul's house and the rage of Saul and the insanity of Saul and given a time of rest so that now he could go be a deliverer. And this is true for you as well. You are delivered so that you can be a deliverer. You are rescued so that you can be a rescuer. You are saved so that you can save others. God put David through this torturous relationship with Saul so that David could be a savior of Israel. So now this chapter that we come to this morning opens with aggression once again on the part of the Philistines. They're attacking the threshing floors of Keilah. Keilah is a town in Judah, but it's not a border town. You might think, oh, the Philistines are just, they're just getting riled up and they're just attacking the border again. Hela is deep within the territory of Judah. The Philistines, knowing Saul's insanity, are very brazen at this point. They're not afraid of Israel or Israel's God now at all. They're free to go wherever they wanna go. So the Philistines are down at the threshing floors taking all the food. Not, they're not raiding the fields. They're not, they're not uh, raiding the harvesters. They're not out there picking it themselves from the, from the fields. They're raiding the threshing floors. They're stealing the food after it has already been harvested, after it's always, already been processed. All the work has been done for them. And so now they get all the reward and none of the work. Well, the call comes for David, go down there and take care of that situation. You're not allowed to wallow there in the cave. So David inquires of the Lord. He says, Lord, Yahweh, should I go down and attack these Philistines? It's really Saul's job to take care of this. I'm out here with my raggedy bunch. At this point, he's got about 400 men. Later in the chapter, it swells to 600. He's got a handful, more than Gideon had, but not a full army, not, not a full force. So he's got, he's got some, but he's, he's asking the question, Lord, should I go down and attack the Philistines? How does David inquire of the Lord? Certainly David could pray just like you or I prayed, but when David inquires of the Lord, he does it in a very special way because he has the priest of Israel with him at this point, and the priest of Israel who escaped the slaughter of priests, he escaped with the ephod. He escaped with the breastplate of the high priest. You know, it has a gem for every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And also it has that little pocket with the two strange stones in it, the Urim and the Thummim. How do those work? Not quite sure. We don't know how they discern the will of the Lord through those. Maybe they cast them like lots. Maybe one side was black and one side was painted white and they rolled the two of them and if both were black the answer was no and if they rolled them and both were white maybe the answer is yes or there's one black and one white and maybe it's try again or or wait or maybe the lord doesn't have an answer for us on this but the proverbs say the lot is cast into the lap and the whole disposing thereof is of the lord and so this is this is somehow mysteriously the way they discern the will of the lord god gave them this he told them to use it But the point is David has access through the high priest to the voice of God, the express will of God. Saul does not have access to the expressed will of God at this point. That's why Saul later goes to a witch because he's cut off from from the voice of God at this point. But I wanna stop and point out here that David is inheriting all the treasures of the land. David is out here in the wilderness, but a prophet has joined him the prophet Gad, and the priest has joined him. He's got the prophet and the priest, and David is the next king. Here, you have functionally all three offices of Israel. You have the priest, you have the king, you have the prophet out here with David in the wilderness. David has the ephod. He's got got the ability to communicate with God. He's got the trophy of Goliath's sword, as well as a remnant of faithful Israel who've come out to join him in the wilderness. David is out in the wilderness inheriting the riches and the treasures of Israel and out there preparing a new nation to be ready to take over the land when the time comes. David has plundered old Israel the way that Israel plundered Egypt, and now, now, now David is out there with these raw materials going to form a new society with him as king at the center. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did with the 12 apostles and the 70 disciples and the multitudes who followed him. He was out there in the wilderness, like David, gathering to himself the raw materials of the new creation, the new nation, a new people, a new tribe, the church. He called them out into the wilderness so they could go in and conquer the land in a new way. So David poses this question to the Lord through the priest, and he asks the Lord, should we go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord's answer is, yes, David, go attack them and deliver the city of Keilah. The word deliver there is the same word that's used all throughout the book of Judges. In fact, that word is the title of the book of judges, the word deliver is uh, the word uh, save or rescue. The the judges were all deliverers of Israel; they were saviors of Israel, saving them from their oppressors. Now God is giving David the title of deliverer, of savior. This is the title that God is giving David. Now He tells him, "Go do that," which further contrasts David from Saul. Again, we're we're moving David and Saul in two very opposite directions now. Saul has not been a deliverer of Israel. He's not been a savior of Israel. Saul has just been a destroyer of Israel when he killed the priests at Nob. David is becoming the savior of Israel while Saul is the destroyer. Saul complains all the time. Nobody tells me anything. There's all kinds of stuff going on and nobody nobody communicates with me. Nobody talks to me. No one tells me important news. Everybody keeps secrets. Everybody's conspiring against me. But with David, God discloses everything. God speaks to David. God shares with him everything he needs to know through Gad, the prophet, through Abiathar, the priest. Saul's best friend and closest ally is who? Doeg, the Edomite, this bloodthirsty uh, monster troll of a man who killed the priests. David's friend is Jonathan, the good and faithful royal son. And so, so we're, we're pulling these two men in separate directions in opposite directions, showing that God's blessing is presently resting on David. So the Lord says, do it, go, attack. But David's men weren't so keen on the idea. They weren't so excited about this. They thought, you know what? We're in enough danger already just by hanging around David. So they said, David, we shouldn't do this. We're really asking for more trouble than we can handle. We're biting off more than we can chew. And it sounds cautious. It sounds really wise. It sounds like that's good, good sense, except it isn't. It's weak and it's fearful. David could have listened to them just as uh, Israel was overwhelmed by the fears of the spies who came back from the land of Canaan. But David doesn't listen. He does ask the Lord one more time, Lord, are you sure that we're supposed to do this, and the Lord made a promise. The Lord said, I will deliver, there's that word again, I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. There's so much going on here with hands. We've seen Saul rules with a spear in his hand, David ministers with a harp or a lyre in his hand, the king with the lyre, the king, the psalmist king, the poet king conquers, the angry king with the spear uh, just fails time and time again. But well, the Lord says, I'm going to deliver the city into your hand. Indeed, David and his men go down to Keilah. They strike the Philistines with a mighty blow. And of course, as you would expect, Saul is going to hear about this. So let's pick up the story in verse seven. Saul was told that David had gone down to Keilah. And Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, "O oh Yahweh God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his own hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Oh, Yahweh, God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And Yahweh said, he will come down. And David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and and my men into the hand of Saul? And Yahweh said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. Saul hears about David's victory. Once again, Saul's laying back. Saul's passive. Saul's not taking care of his business. Other young men have to go take care of his business. Not only Jonathan, but now David goes and he delivers the city. David hears about the victory and now he knows, well, that's where David is. I know where to find him. I know where to get him. He's cornered in a city with bars and gates. Saul can surround David and and have David out of there before long. So Saul gets all of his men together and he goes down to Keilah and he gets ready to besiege the city. David hears the news. He calls Abiathar and he asks the Lord, are these men, you know, these men that I just delivered from the Philistines? you know these men who were starving because Philistines were taking food out of the mouths of their children? These men that I have risked my life to come save, are these men going to turn me over to Saul? And the Lord's answer is, yeah, they're gonna turn you over. They're gonna give you right back to Saul. No, no, wait, Lord, are these men gonna defend me or not? Yeah, they're they're gonna turn you over. David is among his own people here. He's in Judah. It's not like he's off in Ephraim or Manasseh or some other tribe. David is among his own people in Judah and he's just saved one of his own cities just like one of the judges of old and yet they're not going to stick up for him when the wicked Benjamite Saul comes. They're going to turn on him. He goes to his own and his own receive him not. His own people are gonna turn him over to the enemy. Does that sound like anybody else? David is the true Savior and the true deliverer of Israel, but he's a rejected savior. Maybe the men of Keilah had some greater sense of loyalty to Saul, or maybe they were just afraid of what Saul would do to them if they helped David. I'm sure they heard what happened at the at Nob nah with the slaughter of the priests. So so they think, is it any big sacrifice for us to just deliver up one man? I mean, I don't want to get in between all this stuff between David and Saul. I mean, Saul's a king, and David's a good guy, I'm sure, but I just don't want to get mixed up in this. Just, just let's just deliver David up, and we can have peace. Just, just deliver up the scapegoat. Uh, just see him slaughtered, and the land will have rest. Well, their lack of loyalty to David is absolutely dumbfounding. And and you have seen this before in your own life, I'm sure. You have seen uh, somebody help someone, or maybe you've helped someone yourself. You pour yourself out for them. You you give things to them, and support and time and you pour yourself into them and then they turn on you and you think what's going on here what did i do here to deserve this i don't understand this um don't you remember anything that has happened so far do you have such a short memory but it's such a strange dynamic but uh, this is this is a heart of wickedness and darkness and ingratitude um, and and unrepentance and it happens and it happened to david um, here let's pick up in verse 14. David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before Yahweh, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Do you remember what Saul was doing the very first time we saw him? What was Saul doing the first time we read his name? He was looking for his father's donkeys. He was hunting for something that he'd been looking for for a while. He never found his father's donkeys. Eventually they were found by somebody else. They eventually turned up, but he didn't have anything to do with it. So whatever we may say of Saul, he's always looking for things that elude him. He he may have many good traits, but a, a tracker, he's, he's not like one of those Indian guides who, who <laughs> took Lewis and Clark across the country. He's not a good tracker. His GPS was broken or something was going on, but he, he, wasn't, he wasn't good. But somehow, and this is hilarious to me, uh, Saul looks for him every day and David is in the wilderness of Ziph and Saul is marching around with his arm and he can't find him. Uh, David wants to go see David. I'm, I'm sorry, Jonathan wants to go see David and he goes right to him. He knows exactly where he is. Jonathan can find him. This is just the confusion and the muddle-headedness of Saul. He's just out there wandering around. Um, d- d- Jonathan goes right to him. And, and what we read is how Jonathan's appearance strengthened David. How did Jonathan encourage David is because of what he says in verse 17. Jonathan says to David, "Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you." Even my father Saul knows that. There are a lot of ways to encourage people. You can send them a card. You can come up with nice words to say. I'm in awe of people who know just the right thing to say at just the right time. That's so uplifting and encouraging and healing, and, and I'm not good at any of that. But what Jonathan teaches us here is something we can all do. And that is, you encourage people by just telling them what God has said. That's all Jonathan does. He tells David, you know what God has said? God has said, you're gonna be the next king. That's the facts. So no matter what Saul does, God's word is true. And Saul knows this, David. Saul knows how he's not going to get you. Saul knows the writing is on the wall he knows this is going to happen. So uh, remind people of God's promises. And this is, what, this is what encourages David. And once again, this is the kind of thing you can only get from other people. You can't get this in isolation. David wasn't going to get this encouragement on his own. David and Jonathan cut another covenant before Yahweh. This is uh, probably the time when Jonathan finally and fully signs over all of his crown rights to David. Like If, if you need me to put it in writing, I'm going to put it in writing. But David, you're gonna be king, we all realize this, we know this, and I'm going to formally and finally turn over all of my crown rights and and all of my privileges to you uh, for for good. Uh, Because after this, um, David and Jonathan don't see each other again after this point. David needs this, this fuel of encouragement in his tank because he's still surrounded by traitors. The men of Keilah were spineless and flaky, but the men of Ziph David is hiding out now, they're just downright treacherous. Let me finish this chapter, verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now, therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed are you of of Yahweh, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see where the place of his hiding is and who has seen him there. For I am told he is very crafty. You know, at least as crafty as a donkey. At least as crafty, because I can't find them either. See, therefore... See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you and it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul but David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But, A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the rock of escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds of En Gedi these men of Ziph know where David is and they try to get in good, they try to ingratiate themselves with Saul. And they say, if we just let Saul know where he is, uh, well then he's going to uh, give us a reward. Saul's response to this is sickening. It is so stomach turning to see how Saul manipulates these men and manipulates the situation. He starts with this blessing and this backhanded self-pity in verse 21. He says to these men who come to him, these are other men of Judah who come to him, who say they're gonna turn over David, and Saul says, blessed are you of Yahweh for you have compassion on me how does the word Yahweh not sting on Saul's lips and tongue at this point with everything he's done and everything he's said and and all that he's blasphemed and all that he's profaned it's just the the name of Yahweh just kind of slides off of his tongue blessed are you of Yahweh for you have compassion on me this is the man that just killed a city full of priests and now he, he is bold enough to invoke the name of the Lord in in talking to these men? How dare he invoke the name of Yahweh? Then he starts to worry about the caution and the precision that's needed to catch a snake like David. This is his way of impugning David. This is his subtle way. This is his backhanded way of tearing down David's reputation. David is an honorable man. But what does he call him? He says, take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides. He is, he is very crafty. What is he calling him? He's calling him a serpent. He's calling him a, a, a wild animal. And you, you really got to be precise with a snake like David is what he's saying. Uh, David is a seditious enemy. He's a, he's a, a rebel. And then he ends up with uh, bragging. He says, uh, uh, it shall be if he's in the land well, I will search uh, for him throughout all the clans of Judah. I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna find my man. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get him. What a hubris when you haven't been able to find anything. The whole book, Saul. Saul picks up the hot pursuit and there's a moment of tension in verse 26 where Saul is on one side of the mountain and David is on the other and Saul is catching up and his men are about to encircle David. And you can feel the tension and the music swelling as as Saul is getting close to David when somebody runs up to Saul and says, stop, the Philistines are attacking. We have to leave. We have to drop this. We have to go, hurry. The Philistines have invaded the land. David has been spared once again. And the cavalry that comes to his aid is the Philistines. It's, it's amazing how the Lord even uses his enemies to preserve his anointed. The Philistines are a tool in the hand of the Lord to spare David. Well, David goes from there to dwell in the strongholds. Uh, that's, these are places in the mountains where you could defend. Uh, he stays at a place called En Gedi, which means spring this is a well-watered place in the wilderness, watery place, uh, uh, in a, a water coming out of a rocky place, rather. So David has been in the wilderness. He's already got his bread from heaven. He got the show bread from the table, and now he's being fed and watered uh, by water out of a rock, just like Israel did as well. The Lord has fed him, and now he leads him beside the still waters. So again, David is being delivered so that he can go on to be a deliverer. David is rescued from the hand of Saul so that he can in turn rescue Israel from the hand of Saul. David is the delivered deliverer. He is the saved savior. He is the rescued rescuer. His loneliness and his rejection and his isolation was just one step, just one chapter in his story toward his fellowship in Israel, his friendship with his brethren and his enthronement as king. David becomes king, not in spite of his suffering, but he's made a better king because of his suffering. And you know, there's no glory without suffering. There's no resurrection without a cross. There's no glory without a cross. You can't read three verses about David in the story without being reminded about the work of of Our Lord Jesus. And the Psalms that David is writing during this period, he's writing about his own experience of rejection. Those Psalms become the soundtrack of Jesus' experience. Jesus grows up singing the Psalms. Jesus employs the Psalms when he's teaching and defending what he's doing. And when Jesus is nailed to the cross, he sings the Psalms. Jesus sings all the Psalms, and all the Psalms are about him. At one of my friends, ordination examinations, uh, he was asked on the, on the floor of the examination, he was asked, could you name uh, some messianic psalms? How many? I don't know, six or seven. Can you name six or seven messianic psalms, psalms about Jesus? And he scratched his head and he said, well, um, psalm one, psalm two, psalm three, <laughs> psalm four, Psalm 5, and of course, everybody got it. And I know exactly, you're asking for Psalm 22, you're asking for Psalm 44, I'm sorry, 24. There are specific Psalms that everybody thinks, oh, those are the Messianic Psalms. But the truth is, all the Psalms are about Jesus. All the Psalms point to Jesus, even the ones that express loneliness and isolation that come out of David's experiences here with Saul. Because Jesus was despised and rejected. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, just like his father, his great, 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 great grandfather, David. Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by someone you've invested yourself in. Jesus knows what it's like to be abused by people you thought were your friends. The people you thought, these are my people, and they reject you. Now, you and I, when we're rejected or isolated or lonely, we might contribute to the rejection. Sometimes we may deserve harsh treatment because of our own sins or our own foolishness. But Jesus deserved none of it. In fact, Jesus was most rejected when he was most obedient to his father. Jesus was persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus was estranged from those closest to him, not because he was sinful, not because he was wicked, not because he was hard to get along with, but because he was holy. He went through all these forms of rejection, even to the ultimate rejection, when he became sin on the cross and he was forsaken by the father. He who knew no sin became sin and so he was rejected and forsaken. So Jesus was rejected for his holiness during his life and then he was forsaken, smitten of God and afflicted when he carried the sin of the world. Jesus dealt with isolation and rejection and loneliness coming and going, which makes him the perfect savior for you. That's why you can trust him. He knows exactly what you're going through. He is the great high priest who can sympathize with your weakness. He knows what it's like to be alone and lonely and fearful. That's good news that he knows, but there's even better news than that. He doesn't simply know about your loneliness. He is at work to destroy your loneliness. He takes us out of the world, out of the darkness and isolation and ignorance of the old world and puts us in a new family where we're no longer strangers or aliens. We're not on the outside. We're not on our own. He gives us a new name and puts us in a community of the saints. Jesus was cut off. Jesus was alienated so that you could be brought near. So then, if he's done all this so that you could have a name and a community and a people... Well, that's why you don't keep her, the church at arm's length. That's why you don't resist her efforts to love you. That's why you don't push her away when she wants to get to know you better. That's, that's why you don't forsake her fellowship. You certainly don't forsake the worship of the saints. This is why you embrace her because Jesus has died and suffered to, to draw you into her fellowship so then also that you could follow him in this way. Now, when you experience this, remember what the prophet Gad told David, don't hang out in this cave, get to work. There are people who need you. You have been delivered so that you can be a deliverer. You have been rescued so that you can be a rescuer. You have been brought into this family so that other lonely, lost and wandering souls can be brought into the family. So what does our fragmented, splintered, confused, divided isolated, lonely world need more than anything. They need community. They need a specific community. They need the community of the saints. They look for it in all the wrong places. They, they look for people who will justify and support the insanity that they've bought into. And what they need, though, is the only community that has the way of life, which is the body of of our Lord Jesus. That's what David grows into, that's what he finds. He gets his people, he grows, and even though he's got the enemy Saul, he's growing this community, and that's what we do as well. Though we have enemies and opponents, we got our people, we got our community, and we grow it, inheriting all of the riches, all of the treasures of the, of the, of the Egyptians and the old Israel. We inherit it and we grow it. That's what we see here with David, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your people, the church, and we pray that we would always love her and embrace her and uh, build her up and strengthen her in every way. Father, give us your Holy Spirit so that we may know the comfort of communion of, of fellowship with the Trinity. And Father, may that be the model of our life together. May we love and serve and give and exchange glory and sacrifice just as you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done this from all eternity past. So grow us to further model and image that communion and community you have. So Father, we pray this humbly asking for your guidance in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.